from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths, and here's what we're working on for you. Quick hands. Nebraska farm kids go full badger. No-till and cover crops are great for soil health, but attractive to these tiny rodents. A close call. Able to, with his hands, to get my head uncovered. Hear one man's story of survival. In John's world. The days of future past. And USDA releases a host of new supply demand numbers. We'll break it all down today on U.S. Farm Report. Hello and welcome to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths in for Tyne Morgan, who's on vacation this week. Now we began with the latest on the markets, which were keeping a close eye on the weather forecast this week after a new crop rating report from USDA came in weaker than expected, with recent high heat appearing to cut into yield prospects. USDA says that 58% of the corn crop right now is good to excellent. That's down 3% from last week. Checking soybeans with the crop now rated 59% good to excellent. That's down 1% from last week. Cotton also impacted by that heat, now just 31% good to excellent, down 7% from the previous week in Texas, extremely hard hit by dry, hot conditions, with just 14% of the crop rated as good. None of it rated as excellent, with 48% rated poor to very poor. 86% of the winter wheat harvest is now completed. Weather, just one thing factoring into this month's supply demand report, USDA adjusting its yield expectations for corn lower this week to 175.4 versus its July estimate of 177. It also lowered its harvested acres. Meanwhile, soybean yields were raised to just shy of 52 bushels per acre, up from 51.5. Looking at what it all means for ending stocks, corn ending stocks for 22-23 are now forecast at 1.38 billion bushels that's lower than last month. Soybean stocks were raised to 245 million bushels, and wheat ending stocks are lowered at 610 million bushels, down nearly 30 million from a month ago. The latest measure of inflation is out. The consumer price index rising 8.5% for the 12 months ending July. That's down from the 9.1% increase back in June. Food and energy continues to drive inflation. Energy nearly 33% higher than a year ago. Meanwhile, the food index is up nearly 11% over the past year. That's the largest 12-month increase in 43 years. Inflation also hitting cropland values. The latest numbers from USDA show average prices rose 14% last year alone. For 2022, USDA reports the value of the nation's cropland at $5,050 an acre. That's up $630 year over year, and it marks back-to-back -back record highs in cropland values. Pasture values, they came in at $16.50 per acre, up nearly 12%. Now, the states with the 10 highest cropland values are in dark green on this map. Iowa prices, they were up 20%. Illinois up 13 and Indiana up 14% from 2021. For a further breakdown on these numbers and a closer look at this map, head over to agweb.com. A new bill worth hundreds of millions of dollars could soon be heading to the president's desk. Congress voting on the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. But despite its name, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said the bill would have a negligible effect on inflation this year and into 2023. Now you see on your screen some of the key details that pertain to ag in the Senate's version. There is a $1 a gallon tax credit for biomass-based diesel. 
along with a temporary $1.25 per gallon tax credit for sustainable aviation fuel. There would also be funding for blender pumps and other biofuel infrastructure. Roughly $2 billion would be set aside for USDA's Rural Energy for America program. There's also $4 billion to combat drought in the West, $5.3 billion in farm debt relief, and a big chunk, $18 billion, is for conservation programs. To pay for it all, though, the bill includes a 15% corporate minimum tax for businesses with at least $1 billion in net income. An analysis of the bill by the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation indicates that corporations will pay roughly $296 billion in additional taxes over the next decade. Farm tax expert Paul Neifer tells me that the $1 billion net income threshold should not affect farm businesses. Grain continues to set sail from the Black Sea ports of Ukraine. More than a dozen ships have now left Ukrainian ports bound for Turkey. The latest ship hauling corn to South Korea and another taking sunflower meal to Turkey. Meanwhile, the first ship to leave Ukraine following the UN deal, the Rizzoni, dealt with some issues after its Lebanese buyer refused delivery, citing a five-month delay. The ship has now docked in Turkey. A tough sight to see for farmers in northeastern Oregon. A large fire at the Pendleton Flour Mill. City officials say crews were originally called to the mill on Tuesday afternoon on a report of black smoke coming from the facility, but no visible flames. They were able to put out the small fire, remained on the scene. A second fire started early Wednesday morning, fully engulfing the dry grain and wood structure. Weather in August is key to yield potential, especially for soybeans. We'll stop by the Weather Lab next. Backnology Days is back, August 25th through the 27th. Come see for yourself why this annual event draws thousands of farmers to Atlanta, Indiana. Learn more and register today at bexhybrids.com slash fieldshows. Monsoon rains are helping ease some of the drought conditions in the southwest. Meteorologist Matt Urasavik joins us with what to expect in the week ahead. Matt. Yeah, that's right, Clinton. We've actually seen some improvements in the west with all of that rain that has been seen and even more to come as we head through the weekend and into next week. And a lot more rain because that pattern is going to really stay the same. But take a look at this. Improvements through the southern Rockies, down into parts of Arizona and New Mexico, even Parts of Southern California seeing some improvements there. Still up here, though, in parts of the Corn Belt, very dry. Likely, though, to get a little bit more rain as we head towards this week as that pattern starts to shift a little bit farther to the east. Still abnormally dry in the southeast and across uh, parts of the uh, northeast as well. But take a look at the improvements here. Even seeing a little bit of green through parts of the, uh, the higher elevations there in the Rockies. Yellows just abnormally dry through most of Colorado, even down into the mountains of Arizona, and much improved from where we were about a month or two ago where almost this entire area was dark red. So all of this rain really starting to help things out as we head through this week. And uh, we're going to even be seeing more chances for rain because that ridge building through the middle of the country again. Notice where it's going, though. It starts to move back to the west. It keeps things a little bit cooler there in the east. More chances of rain, especially for parts of the Corn Belt as we head through the second half of this week. But the warmth, the humidity still going to allow for those showers and storms possible back in the southwest even through next week and through next weekend. So we'll continue to see that improvement there 
in the west. Here's a look at Monday, though. More showers and storms across the east as the system moves up the east coast. And then, obviously, those uh, afternoon scattered showers and storms along the Gulf Coast and Florida. And then more of that same shower and thunderstorm activity through parts of the west. Meanwhile, remaining very warm through the middle of the country. Mild up there behind the system, though. Temperatures will be right around average. That continues to be the case in the Great Lakes and parts of the Corn Belt through Wednesday. This system exiting off to the east coast. Another cold front sliding southward, but more chances for rain in the west where we really needed it. And we're going to start to see some major improvement there with the drought monitor. That still is the case on Friday as well. More showers and storms in the southeast and another system dropping through the Great Lakes as we head towards next weekend. High pressure still sitting right in the middle of the country, though. Some of those areas will remain very, very dry with few chances of rain at all as we head into this week. Here's a look at the temperatures above normal through the middle of the country where we're still seeing all of that heat. But out here where we're dealing with those showers and storms, temperatures rebounding a little bit from where they were for the start of the summer, but much above normal, even some excessive heat possible in parts of the northwest. And then below average where we've got uh, some of those uh, showers and storms and some training storms there in the east. You can see that there reflected in the precipitation. Same thing out in the west. And then take a look at this. Temperatures next week could be below normal for much of the center of the country while staying very warm in the west. And we'll continue to track that right here. Clinton, back to you. All right, thanks, Matt. Now, there's been plenty for markets to unpack this week. Our very own Michelle Rook joins us next to break down the latest USDA numbers. The 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour is coming soon. Register now for the nightly in-person or virtual meetings at profarmer.com register. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report Roundtables this weekend with Alan Burglar, Burglar Marketing and Darren Fry Water Street Solutions. WASDE report out on Friday. Let's talk about a few of the numbers that kind of stuck out. First of all, corn yield lowered 1.6 bushels per acre. Darren, did that surprise you at all, at all? And do you think we will see bigger decreases as we go forward in the September report? Because we had a lot of that heat after the report was released. Yeah, you know, if, if you take a look at what the USDA did on Friday, I was expecting them to lower the corn. I'm not really super bearish corn with some of the demand I see in front of us, but I would expect as we get further along here in subsequent reports, we could see further declines like as they get out in those fields and do a field survey, September, October, will really tell the story. We have a few, um, you know, tours in between here uh, and there as well. And so the Pro Farmer Tour, Will give us an idea of how bad some of those areas especially out west are with pollination grain fill and what we saw for tip back so i would look for more reductions as we move forward uh into the september and october crop report alan the interesting part about it was i thought it was going to be a east versus west kind of a, a conflict there in terms of yield loss in the west and maybe made up for in the eastern corn belt that's not kind of how the state-by-state -state breakouts were were they no, it's a little little more uneven than that. We did have uh, Nebraska down there. They took it to 181, so they are reflecting some problems out in Nebraska and Kansas. But the uh, you, you had a little more uneven performance in the in the center and eastern part of the Corn Belt than what maybe the trade had expected. Uh, the the big unchanged number, of course, was Iowa at 205 bushels per acre, and there's a lot of acres there. But yeah, we know there were some problems in Ohio with uh, wet weather planning this spring. I think they're reflecting that. Uh, we have to remember this is this is 
very heavily weighted towards the farmer surveys with a little bit of satellite sensing mixed in. And uh, it was also done a, a week ago. So some of those numbers will shift here. So Darren, if we can assume now that maybe yields are gonna go down from here, where do we need to be in terms of price action here on the corn? Do we need to go much higher? Well, you know, we might have a little bit more of a rally uh, in the market before we roll over. But, you know, some people are calling a early harvest low in place right. that we had a few weeks back. And I don't know if I can say that yet. The charts are still leaning down, but we do have to respect, you know, maybe um, the demand and what we're seeing happen in Europe. They downgraded that crop a lot. And I do think that we will have better demand as soon as Brazil runs out of corn. So um, I'm not super bearish, but I don't think you can hold a rally in the face of harvest. So I'd be looking for rallies uh, to sell the market here, I do believe. Let's also talk about the soybean number. Yield was up about 0.4 bushels per acre. It was offset by lower harvested acres. And did that surprise you at all, Alan? I'm a little surprised they went as high as they did, but I, I, I think it does reflect NASA's caution in the August report. Uh, we, most of us in the trade say that bean yields are set in August. We were getting some rain there uh, across uh, Iowa and Illinois last weekend. I think they probably took a wait and see attitude on that. Uh, the, you know, the, the crop in general, the little I-80 and I-74 tour I did, uh, has pretty good stands, pretty good canopy. It's just how much is it being stressed by the, the high temperatures and do we get the the timely rains in the western half of the Corn Belt that uh, to, to free up some of the more stressed areas. So if it stays dry for the rest of August, Ellen, do you think that these yield numbers need to continue to go down or will they go down? I, I think the potential is, is for them to go down towards uh, 50 and a half or maybe even 50 bushels an acre nationally. But again, it, it's contingent on the, that rainfall. The, the weather models are having a tough time resolving that last half of August. We've seen the EU model consistently a little wetter than the, the US model. US model kind of shocked the trade earlier in the week with a, with a big uh, increase in moisture for the Western Corn Belt and then, then took some of it back out. So uh, it, it's how much rain comes up, uh, comes up out of the Gulf of California and gets pumped into the into the jet stream back into the Midwest. Right now it's raining in the Rockies, but it's not raining in the Western Corn Belt. So we had a pretty good rally going into the report, Darren, in the soybean market. So do you think this market has all of this worked in or do we need to take a little setback or where are we going with prices? Well, we'll have to see you know, how we start out the new week. There is some rain in the forecast early in the week and obviously we couldn't see a stronger trade here. We didn't have terrible closes on Friday and uh, if you just take a look at what's going on with, uh, you know, after an August report, a lot of times you will get a rally and then you break the market into harvest as you begin September. We'll talk more about marketing advice and those cotton numbers when we come back on U.S. Farm Report. Passionate debate is hard to escape these days. As John Phipps points out, sometimes your best perspective is time. Back in the distant past, for eight years, I wrote a blog and just idly looking back, I was struck more by the volume of the writing than the quality. During the winter especially, I posted two or three or even four times a day, and some of the posts were the equivalent of a two-page spread in Farm Journal. I scrolled down all those posts, some 4,000, and noticed a recurrent pattern. 
we're still talking and arguing about much the same stuff as we did at the beginning of the century. It would appear that many of the crises in agriculture that alarmed us mightily in the early 21st century simmered down to something like philosophical stalemates with no point of view dominating as we feared. For example, e-readers. I was an early and enthusiastic adopter of the old Kindle, and not in small part because the books initially were cheaper. I gushed about them often on my blog, but curiously, the e-book market share of all books rose to about one-fifth, about 20 percent, and hit a ceiling. I'm sure publishers and authors forcing Amazon and others to price e-books and dead tree versions about the same had a huge effect. But maybe there are far more of us who value shelves of paper than bytes of data. But this self-limiting phenomenon was echoed in other things we fussed about 20 years ago. The non-GMO furor hasn't gone away, for instance, but it has kind of bogged down into just another irritant for both sides. The emergence of non-GMO foods topped out much like e-books, and the effect on commodity markets like corn and soybeans was really hard to identify during all the droughts and floods and tariffs and farm programs and technology advances and yada yada. In short, all those dire predictions and angry exchanges about health and safety apparently just got old. The debate continues today, but it's hard to say it rages. Perhaps given enough time, we tend to exhaust our passions and begin to accept reality. Maybe old arguments simply get displaced by new controversies. At the core, however, I think we really hate to admit we were wrong or mistaken about predictions and worries, so we just hush up and move on. We don't look back enough at our fixed records, like my blog. I think we should do that. And above all, we should be reluctant to man the barricades over any predictions that suggest impending doom for agriculture and our communities. Either the predictions are misguided or they will occur so slowly that we won't even notice. All right, thanks, John. When we come back, uh, stunning 1967 1256 International Turbo Tractor Tales is next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we are muscle-bound. We're headed to Indiana to check out an IH 1256. My name is Jerry Smoker, and this is an inter 1967 International Harvester 1256. This tractor was days away from a scrapper in a junkyard in Minnesota. Didn't run on all the cylinders. Uh, it had some gears tore out in the transmission. This tractor actually is almost brand new other than the other than the frame. Put a lot of lot of hours in the seat of one of these. Uh, I'll take it to plow days. I've got a plow I can pull with this tractor and uh, parades and shows and not as much as I used to. It just gives you a, a, feel, a sense of accomplishment. 
that you've done something that caught somebody's eye and it makes you want to keep doing it. Makes you want to keep, makes you want to do another one. All right, love it. Still to come, a grain bin rescue you won't want to miss. It's a new series titled Close Calls, Stories of Survival. Next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Grain bin entrapments happen too often across the country. From the 1970s through 2020, more than 60% of those accidents were fatal. Now, thanks to new technology, better rescue equipment, as well as awareness, fatalities are on the decline. And as Farm Journal's Tyne Morgan tells us, a close call seven years ago is one a Missouri farmer will never forget. December 5th, 2015 started out as a normal day here on Dennis Schneider's farm. And I thought, well, I'll just get up there and watch it to make sure no big chunks go down into the auger and choke it up. He knew it was dangerous, but he had a backup plan just in case things went wrong. But I had my uh, younger son, Dustin, standing by the auger switch. Dennis says everything was okay until it wasn't. My legs started getting weaker and stuff. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll call him. I got ready to call him and I got a marketing text at that moment on the phone. With one hand free, he cleared that text and made the call all while he was sinking. And we never talked. He heard the phone ring and he shut the auger off. But in just a matter of seconds, Schneider was trapped in this bin. Pulled me down and I was buried at the time, his shoulders were buried and just his head sticking out. But as the sun stepped in, he didn't realize Schneider sunk even deeper. When he got in, all that corn came off that cone where he stepped in and he just buried, buried me. Now he was able to, with his hands, to get my head uncovered. It was 930 in the morning and all of this was happening here while 911 dispatched the call to this fire department. That was one of the nightmares or worst call that has come in for quite a while. Jeff Buford was the Alma fire chief at the time, less than 10 miles away. I was at work, went down to the firehouse. Jeff Bergman was the next one and we took off. And on the way, discovered two other firefighters happened to be only a mile away from Schneider's farm at the time. As we were coming out, one of them was already on top telling us what we had, what we what we were going to need to do. The department had gone through some training, but it was an older style. And in 2015, they did not have the proper grain bin rescue equipment. But the two firefighters that arrived first saw this, something that proved to be crucial while Dennis was trapped. And they put that around Dennis's head to keep anything getting around him, to keep him breathing. There was an opening in the top for them to put oxygen down through that opening and just put it around me just to keep the corn from coming at me more. As I was breathing, I was kind of packing that corn in just with the muscles of breathing. As the seconds turned into minutes and the minutes into hours, Schneider knew he had to stay calm. I always told him that in any situation, panic is an option, not a requirement. You do not have to panic. As Schneider stayed calm, Buford and his team outside came up with a plan to get the pressure off Dennis by cutting holes in the bin. Well, we cut the first one right here and thinking that would get the pressure off of him. Well, it put more pressure because the corn was wanting to slide in behind. So it was actually 
he really struggled at the time. Ben, bending me over and bending yes. me up more, so. So the firefighters pivoted quickly, knowing they would need to cut even more holes. Then we would go to the other one, and they would tell us from up on top which hole to go to. There hadn't been any training to do that, but Buford says they just assessed the situation and searched for solutions to get the pressure off Schneider. We actually called in to the lumberyard and had him cut some uh, half-inch plywood, and we used that to put around Dennis to help, too, as we were doing this. After two and a half hours of trying to rescue him, finally, Schneider was free. He came out of it, the bin and just as calm as he is right now. This was all full of corn already, so I just slid all the way out to the ground out here and just looked around at everybody around, and I had said that I felt like I was surrounded by a, a bounty of heavenly host. It wasn't just a handful of volunteer firefighters and first responders that worked tirelessly to rescue him. There was an entire team. Firefighters alone, I would say there was probably 50 to 55 firefighters here. All volunteer. The people were amazing. This is probably a half mile, quarter mile driveway. Quarter to half mile, it was packed. I think everything turned out the way it was supposed to be. In a scary situation where so much could have gone wrong, that day, everything seemed to go right. And they had to decide how deep I was, how low that hole had to be to free me up. They had that right. The neighbors brought loaders over. I had a skid loader close so they could push the corn out of the way so it kept flowing away. Uh, no, they just did a super, super job. To Buford, it wasn't coincidence how much went right. He thinks Schneider survived for a reason. Because he can share his story. There's not many people that you do this. How many, how many are lucky enough to be able to do that? Both have now made it their mission to share their story. And I told my younger son, Dustin, I said, why don't you come along and you can correct my mistakes and share with them how you felt. And he said to me, Dad, I'm trying to forget it. While some try to forget, Buford and Schneider will forever remember that December day, a close call that's now a story of survival. All right, when we come back, surviving these August markets, Michelle Rook returns with our panel of experts next. Close Calls, Stories of Survival on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AGI Bin Manager. From the convenience of your smartphone, you can safely know the condition of stored grain without having to climb your bin or monitor temperature and moisture. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Wazi report out on Friday. A lot of surprises in terms of the cotton numbers. And Alan, talk just a little bit about the record number of abandoned acres that we had in this lower production. How historical is this? These are really big reductions. And, and to nobody's surprise, most of it's in Texas. Uh, the the uh, average yield for Texas is hanging in there pretty close to normal, 660-some bales or pounds per, per acre. But uh, they've got the Texas cotton production dropping to 2.9 million bales from 7.7 .7 last year. So that's a dramatic drop for that state. And it is primarily abandonment. Uh, they, they, there's just a lot of acres that they don't believe will be harvested. That showed up in the national number, which was down as uh, 1.42 million acres. So do you think that prices are going to go much higher in cotton from here? I think they have to. We've got the ending stocks number drop into 1.8 million bales. Uh, of course, demand is always a question as prices go up, but I think you, 
you have to uh, reflect the supply shortage here, the scarcity, and uh, the market's going to be pretty well supported there at the, the recent lows. We probably have a, a de facto low in the market here for a while. Uh, you know, get get me up to 115, 120, then I'm, I'm going to question whether we can push it past that or not. It will depend on some of the other parts of the world probably. But uh, this is definitely a shocker, and, and uh, the limit up move on Friday, no surprise. I want to talk about some of the other factors as well outside of the WASD that will influence prices going forward here. And one is we've had funds which have liquidated so much in a lot of the commodities sector. Talk about, um, Darren, what you think it would take to get these funds to come back in here to help push these corn and soybean markets. And can we get back up to contract highs if they do come in? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they gauge this inflation and what the feds are going to do with interest rates. I really think when they left, they left because of some seasonals, you know, seasonals turned down in May and June for grains, but also you had the feds talking tough, talking hawkish about inflation, what they're going to do with interest rates. And of course, we've seen them move on the interest rates, but we also have seen a weaker CPI and PPI number here this past week. And it looks a little bit like the stock market wants to turn higher, commodities in general, gold and silver, the bond market, everything responded. And so if the feds are, are gonna take a more dovish stance here, because maybe some of these things are taking effect and we see the feds back off a little bit, it might go to a risk on trade, that will bring the funds back in. I think there's some fundamental things that are supported for grains, but the big thing I think is, do we have a tailwind or a headwind with the direction the feds are going. And I think we got to watch that closely to see if the funds come back in here or not. But I would expect and, some activity here as we move forward. And Alan, one of the other fundamental things that you know you cannot not mention is the fact that the soybean meal market has been on fire. We've had cash basis levels very strong for corn and soybeans, and we've got the bull spreads working. What does that tell us about the markets, corn and soybeans, and where they're going to go going forward? Well, I, I think that the meal's probably been stronger than what we thought it was going to be two or three weeks ago. That that's been the driver of the of the board crush. Uh, we use a little different board crush formula that, that recognizes the higher oil yields that, that they've been seeing over the last two years. But it it got up well over three dollars a bushel here this week. So uh, it's a license to print money for the crushers, and and uh, they're obviously able to pass on at least at the present time the price in the meal and the and the bean oil so right. uh, they can pay up pretty much anything they want to pay for for uh, cash beans right now it's uh, how much a farmer's asking with these strong cash prices then what are you recommending in terms of marketing advice alan we're, we're trying to to uh, keep our powder dry right now we we've, we made some early sales at higher levels and uh we might want to sell another 10% before we get to harvest if, if the market rallies enough here. But uh, for the most part, uh, trying not to do too much here and, and see just how, how far this dryness is going to stretch us here. And more importantly, how much export demand are we losing right. here? USDA did cut the new crop corn exports 25 million today, recognizing that we're not getting the sales right now. Uh, we need to keep a close eye on that going forward. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, both of us, Alan Brugler and Darren Fry here on U.S. Farm Report. 
Unspoken Truth About Pests on U.S. Farm Report, brought to you by Duracade Viptera Trait Stacks, guarding against 16 above and below ground corn pests like mid-season threats of corn rootworm, earworm, and western bean cutworm. Comprehensive control when it matters most. If you're using no-till and adding more cover crops, there's a pest you may want to keep an eye on. Voles, also known as meadow or field mice, can eat through stands in a hurry. Indiana farmer Aaron Kruger is going all in on cover crops. Yeah, these are coming pretty good. But last year, that added cover, along with a mild winter, provided ample opportunity for small rodents called voles, or meadow mice, to dig into his fields. And after we had planted the beans, it became pretty evident as the beans were emerging, you would walk out there and you would see the stems and the cotyledons were basically just munched off. Typically, they'll see a few spots the size of a car hood. Last year, they replanted whole fields. Last year was the worst that I've, I've seen since I've been farming. You know, we were cooler in the spring and the beans just weren't growing as fast. And so they stayed at that stage that they could just go along the ground and munch them off pretty easily. Farm Journal field agronomist Ken Ferry says voles are common, especially as farms move away from heavy tillage. Once we move to cover crops inside of our no-till as well, that's when that problem can really explode. Missing stands, holes, and bare earth clearly visible from above are the telltale signs the problem needs attention. What causes a vole outbreak is habitat. And if we have a habitat for them to hide under so the predators can't get to them from the foxes to the hawks to whatever's out there that can feed on the vole, that's when the population explodes. Now on average, voles live three to six months, usually from March to October. Gestation is less than a month and females can have five to 10 litters per year. As Ferry says, just one can become 50 in no time. His advice, start clean. If there are voles in your no-till fields, he recommends getting them under control before moving to cover crops. Uh, that's the time to react. and You can put some bait stations out there to try to slow that down, but get them cleaned up before you transition into um, a cover crop program. Once we get into cover crops, they can explode like rats in a granary and they're hard to control at that point. You can't put that many bait stations out. If it gets out of hand, Ferry says he's seen farmers have to pull fields out of no-till and out of cover crops in order to catch up. But Aaron is trying something different. He's adding poles, perches, and nesting boxes to fields in order to encourage more natural control. Some poles, we just stuck a two by four across the top of them um, and kind of set them up to where they were 12 to 15 feet off the ground and place those strategically throughout the farm to help maybe break up some of the distances between, you know, the electric lines, the tree lines, just to, you know, better accommodate any birds of prey that might be flying around. Ferry also says using strip tillage in combination with those cover crops can help ease the problem. That tends to maybe open it up a little bit more, but we notice the vole issues drop uh, quite a bit with just the stripping in there. While voles are notorious for fluctuating populations, peaking every two to five years, Aaron is focused on long-term soil health and searching for ways to keep these pests in check during the growing season. You can read more unspoken truths about pests at agweb.com. Up next, John Phipps and customer support. Small dairies and robots. 
U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13% on a 20,000 bushel bin. That's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by August 15th and receive 13% off. New technology can take time to catch on, and some of it, for some farmers, may not ever be an option. John Phipps joins us with this week's customer support. Dan Piepenberg, and I hope that's close, Dan, a dairy consultant in Appleton, Wisconsin. I visit farms that have 50 cows and some up to 8,000 cows. Why is it that those dairies that have robotic equipment are really happy with the decisions they made to harness this new technology? But those that aren't as progressive talk about everything that is wrong with robots, without having any knowledge of how ro the robotic systems work. Furthermore, lots of these robotic resistors complain about the shortage of labor and not enough help to complete daily activities. With the dairy industry changing so fast, maybe some producers shouldn't be so resistant to new technologies. Uh, well, thank you for your question, Dan. Uh, but. First off, dairy's pretty far out of my field of knowledge, so I will welcome any corrections to what I'm about to share. That said, I'm pretty sure one of the biggest hurdles to robotic adoption is the machines are dang expensive. The best figure I could get was approximately $200,000 per machine. And I'm also guessing there are added costs to adapt a milking parlor to accommodate those machines. One machine can handle around 70 cows per milking, and experts then calculate the ideal number of cows is around 500 to economically switch to robots. I was told years ago by a small dairy farmer that immigrants saved his family dairy, but that, la that, that labor source is not only being sharply curtailed by law, but dairies have to compete with other labor-starved industries for workers now, sharply raising the wages. Like so many small mom-and-pop businesses, the fact that they are cherished institutions of our past does not exempt them from stark financial reality. Now add in that technology can fundamentally change the culture of those businesses. Skills that took years to master efficiently are suddenly obsolete. Patterns of work and community bonds are reforged. Right now, shutting down a dairy operation could be a more lucrative option just based on land values alone. Small producers may not be unprogressive so much as constrained by economic reality. For older dairy farmers, watching a way of life slip away can be painful enough to color your outlook on much of your life and your future. Very true. Thanks, John. When we come back, a bit of nostalgia played out in Iowa this week from the farm. And we want to wrap up today with our best of the week videos from farms across the country. Now, it started last year and made its return. The Field of Dreams game taking place this week at the legendary site of the 1989 iconic baseball movie that started it all. The scene is Dyersville, Iowa. And this year's game between the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago Cubs wearing their throwback uniforms emerging from rows of corn in the outfield. A pathway through a cornfield also leads fans to a new 
MLB-sized ballpark. And then we were captivated by these youngsters catching a badger in a hayfield in Holt County, Nebraska. Using water as a distraction, this young man pulling the badger straight from the hole by the scruff of its neck. It was obviously not pleased. We got him. Good job, buddy. The video has been seen millions of times on social media with a wide range of reactions. Everything from impressed kudos to folks worried about the badger. Now, the boy's parents say it's not his first rodeo. He's had plenty of badger experience out at the farm. And in many parts of the Corn Belt, it's fungicide spraying season. Take a look at this video from Oakleana Farms on Twitter. I think I know her. A helicopter spraying fields and our border collie Piper working right alongside. Now those dogs will pretty much hurt anything. Piper's a big proponent of keeping others out of her space. And that's going to wrap us up this week. From all of us here at U.S. Farm Report, I'm Clinton Griffiths in for Tyne Morgan. She'll be back next week. Thank you for watching and be sure to join us right here again. Until then, enjoy your time in farm country. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.